So the title of tonight's talk is The Cycles of Awakening. And what I've offered here is a, um, a map or a diagram that has some key elements of Buddhist psychology in it. And maybe a, um, a backstory is that um, I began meditating on a retreat very much like this um, about 20 years ago in 1989. <clears throat> and it turns out that year was a good year for um, possible meditation teachers because that's when Anushka also started meditating and so did Diana. <laughs> so it was a, a fine year. <clears throat> Taken about 20 years to ripen, but... Um, so um, I did my first retreat Loved it, <laughs> but there was a lot of ups and downs, uh, faced a lot of pain and opening self-awareness. Um, and at the end of that retreat, uh, swore I'd never do another one, but was grateful. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, and then spent some time afterwards realizing that a lot had happened on the retreat. A lot made sense after the fact. And I didn't see anything else that I could do that was gonna have the type of, of impact that a meditation retreat could do. So reluctantly, I did another one and stumbled around with them for a while um, and finally got tempted to do a longer retreat. And so I did a three-month retreat and that kind of set the hook and I did another three-month retreat. And that really set the hook <clears throat> and decided that I wanted to dedicate my life to the practice. So I went off to um, Burma with Diana and um, ordained as a monk and spent a year in Burma in robes, a very beautiful lifestyle, challenging, but um, uh, there's parts of it that are so incredibly beautiful to be dedicated in that way, to live that lifestyle. And then I disrobed, came home, and I did a nine-month retreat just to sort of <laughs> further digest what the experience I had had. And I'm relaying all this um, to say that over these many years, I've heard many talks many points of view. And when I was in um, Asia, I'd gotten to learn from some fantastic teachers. And, and there were times, you know, you've all seen the ups and downs of practice. There are times when you kind of go up and the mind gets a little clearer and I could really hold a lot of the perspective, this beautiful Buddhist perspective. And then I go down into the fog, into the sloth and torpor and the hindrances come back and I couldn't hold any of it. It'd be all very confusing. And then once I came back um, and I wasn't on retreat anymore, how was I going to make use of all the things I learned in daily life? So there was a lot of um, trying to figure it out. And through many years of playing with it and trying to understand it, what I've put here in this diagram is um, at least my understanding of what I've learned over 20 years of practice. Um, so I'd like to share that with you and hopefully it's beneficial. <laughs> if it's not beneficial, it has a, another side. <laughs> it has a very beautiful side, <laughs> maybe more useful. And you guys tell at the end of the evening whether this side is more useful than this side. And I swear there will be days that this side will be much more useful. <laughs> maybe even within the talk, you'll find that this is much more useful than what's on the front. 
Just a word to say about <clears throat> a diagram with a mind. You all know what it's like in there. And <laughs> it's wild in there. You know, there's thoughts and sounds and memories and breath and different emotions. And there's so much going on in there. And it never is sort of the same thing twice. There's a lot of flux in there. So it'd be hopeless to actually map that out. But this uh, diagram might give, sort of show some themes within there that would be interesting to know. So you can sort of guide yourself through some of that chaos. And just like uh, a map of San Francisco is not San Francisco itself. You know, it's helpful to give some orientation, but at some point you put the map away and, and you have the direct experience um, with some orientation. So at some point you put this map away and you just do the practice. Um, so diving into it. <clears throat> the, there are large circles in the middle is where we'll start. And that is, there's an M, there's an E, and there's a plus minus sign. And these are the first uh, three foundations of mindfulness from my perspective. The M stands for mind. So the mind is that part of you um, that is conscious and receives experience. So um, except when you're in um, sleep or maybe uh, during an operation, <laughs> if you're unconscious, you're having conscious experience um, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, except for the sleeping time. And that's many hours a day, every day of the week, every week of the year, you're having conscious experience. So the mind receives experience. The mind is also where we find emotion, where we find sleepiness or clarity, where we find uh, sort of a bright active mind or one that's feeling kind of slow. Um, there's patience in the mind. So the mind is that uh, dynamic part of you that is receiving this flow of changing experience. And the E stands for experience. On a retreat, we can get really into the subtle play of mind and experience. And so you can really track how you be with a breath and then you hear a bird call. So you're with, the, you're with the breath, you hear the sound, you picture the bird, you come back to the breath, the bird calls again, and then you track the bird and that leads into a story. You can really track the, the incredible movement of mind and experience and how they are playing off each other. Out in daily life, that's not so common that you're sort of doing that incredible slalom ride uh, through experience. So you tend to sort of look at larger pieces of experience, not just that refined look, um, but you look at how's the quality of my mind today, or this morning I was sleepy and then I woke up, or this morning I was irritated, and then I got more calm as the day went on, or, or as the day went on, I got more tired. You can kind of look at larger chunks of how the mind plays, and then larger experiences, um, like being at work would be a large experience. And on retreat, you can look at all the little experiences that make up that larger experience. The mind is never static, so it's always in motion. There's always things changing within it. And you now know more about the mind than most people this far into a retreat like this. You've seen how much fluctuation there is. And it's been that creative, that dynamic all along. It's just most people don't have a chance to actually sit and look at their mind that closely and see how much change goes with on it, how uh, quickly changes can happen. 
and all the variation, all the incredible displays that happen as emotions come and go, as abilities to focus come and go, as the mind is present or adrift. Also, experience changes all the time. So you're with a breath, and the breath is made up of all these little nerve endings firing um, as you're feeling it. So in one breath, there's a lot of sensation happening. There's coolness coming in and warmness coming out. The chest is expanding. So as you really sink into it, there's a lot of dynamic play happening just with the breath, let alone sound, let alone all the things that you've tasted on every meal. It's never been the same, even if you try to get the right amount of yogurt on top of your porridge and try to have the same meal that you enjoyed yesterday, you can't really nail it to be the same experience. So it's always a little bit different. And that's the, the second foundation. Or it might, you might start with experience this sort of as a first foundation. What, what experience are we having? Then we begin to understand the mind's relationship to experience. An important part of the mind's connection to experience is whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or as Phillips had this word neutral, which is not, doesn't really do justice to this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of the mind. So all day long you're having experience, and all day long that experience, as you, as you are there for it, is either a pleasant experience, it's an unpleasant experience, um, or even if you're there for it, you couldn't quite tell if you'd call it pleasant or unpleasant. It, it has a sort of a equanimity with that particular experience. And so for shorthand, we call that neutral. Just understanding this much of this map is big. And it's a lot of the work, it's the hard work you all have done so far on this retreat is watching your mind change as experience has flown through you, breathing, walking, eating. Most people and animals, most animals, um, all the way down even to one-cell organisms, have a strategy of how to negotiate their experience to make it as uh, pleasant as possible, as healthy as possible. And that sort of baseline uh, software that we all have is that if it's pleasant, we try to get more of it. We try to sustain it and maximize the pleasure. And if it's unpleasant, we try to reduce it or separate ourselves from it. And that's not such a bad tactic if you really could control your experience that well. So the food that you like, you try to get more of. The clothes that you like, you try to sustain those clothes and maybe get more of that brand. You know, you try to get a good house to live in, um, good company. Move to California because it has <laughs> nice climate um, down from Washington where it rains, where I spent some time. Um, so that's a, that's a basic strategy. And even um, amoeba have this. Even They can kind of retract from things they don't like and try to extend towards things they do like. So we share this with even the strategies of uh, 
single-celled organisms, some of them. The problem is you can't control experience to only end up with positive or neutral experiences. And this is the Buddha's first noble truth, that no matter what you do, no matter how you do it, no matter what your fantasies are, the perfect vacation, winning the lottery, and then trying to really line up nothing but positive experiences, no matter what you do, you're going to have to face unpleasant experiences. It's just part of the ride. So sorry to be the bearer of such bad news, <laughs> but uh, it's, um, it's part of being human. It's part of even being an animal, is having to face unpleasant experiences, some body pain, some emotional pain, some change in temperature that you can't control so you're cold, some illness will come. Um, you may not like the neighbors you have. So we've already discussed that somewhat, that, um, that you can't control your experience enough to only end up with positive experiences. So if that's your only strategy, you're going to get frustrated. So the Buddha offered a different strategy. He didn't sort of totally deny the first. Um, it's still worth having good company and it's still worth eating healthy food. Um, and living where maybe it's uh, comfortable in climate. The strategy that he offered is in this, um, what I'm calling the awakening cycle. It's sort of the top, um, the top diagram. No matter what your experience with mindfulness meditation, we endeavor to receive it as fully as possible and then receive the next moment's experience and then receive the next moment's experience. So as you're going through life, you could just take it as it comes or you can put a little effort and care into making sure that you're actually receiving the experience you're having, not just sort of going passively along for the ride, but getting a little more clear, this is my experience. So we've been encouraging that. We've been encouraging you to more fully receive no matter what is occurring, to try to be as fully present for it as possible. I have under the word uh, receive two words of curiosity and acceptance. And this helps deepen your reception to fully accept that this is the way things are. This is my experience now. Um, I'm sleeping in a room next to someone who's snoring. <laughs> so I'm going to accept this experience. I'm not going to sit there wishing it were different. I'm going to sink into this experience. Or um, I have a cold now and I wish I were healthy, but I'm going to accept the fact that this is true. Um, no matter what the experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it seems like it's easy to receive pleasant experiences. So it may, may not be so much challenge to tune into the pleasant experiences. But it is a challenge to um, accept the neutral experiences because they get a little boring. And it's even more of a challenge to accept the unpleasant experiences. But that's what we endeavor to do and endeavor to do at first with um, ones we can manage. You know, little bits of unpleasant and little bits of neutral. Like the breath is fairly neutral and a little bit of back pain when sitting. And that's sort of what, what we've been asking you to do. So you take that first stance and you receive experience no matter what it is. 
to the degree that you can do that, and you have now for um, several days, the first couple of days were difficult, um, more challenging. And then as you go into the retreat, you actually have been building the capacity to more deeply uh, receive more experience, a greater range of experience. You can actually be there for it and be there for however it's playing itself out. The next stage is that when you receive something, you can actually begin to build a greater intimacy with that experience. So the the image might be to receive an experience might be if someone rings your doorbell and you open the door and you could have them into your house, welcome, and then they could leave the house. And so you've let them into your house out of politeness, but you didn't necessarily become more, uh, more acquainted with that guest. If you invite them to tea and you really sit down and you get to know them much better, you have a chance of building this intimacy and figuring out more about uh, who this person is that's come to your house. The same is true with the experiences you're having on retreat. You receive the breath. Yes, that's a breath. Yes, that's an in-breath. Yes, that's an out-breath. So you're there with it. But if you keep receiving the breath, you can drop into a little bit more of an intimate relationship to your own body. How many of you had the experience that um, you're taught walking meditation, and then when you try to do it consciously, if it's not, if you're not one of those uh, boring times, you can be in a time where it's just amazing to have a body that can walk at all. I mean, most of us can walk and talk on a cell phone and not even think about the fact that we're walking. It's this amazing act that we do all the time, take for granted. But many times a day, you're able to do walking meditation and come into the body and see all the things that are happening as you walk. What does it mean to even take one step? And it can be just absolutely fascinating to see how the body works, this incredible instrument that you have. I was talking to somebody recently and you know, we can get so excited about an iPhone or we can get so excited about a new computer or a new car and those are nothing. That's cheap compared to having a body. This thing that you have is so phenomenal, there's nothing like it else in the universe. And we are far off from building anything more complex and subtle and amazing than this body. Yet because we're used to it, we kind of think an iPhone is the, you know, the greatest thing <laughs> coming. And you overlook the fact you are inhabiting one of the most amazing instruments that the universe has produced that we know so far. So you get into walking. And while walking, you can see and you can hear. is quite amazing. So this first level of receiving just sort of gets you into your direct experience. And then by the willingness to come more fully into it, you can build this intimacy. As we said earlier, as I said earlier, and as other people have mentioned, because there's so much change going on, and it's really unknown what the next thing is, when you become intimate with your direct experience, this sense of mystery opens up. None of you really know where your mind will wander to next. I don't know if any of you have gotten kind of fascinated by that, but the mind can go in a thousand directions, and after that, it can go in a thousand new directions. And then it can kind of riff off any of those and go in new directions. You really don't know what's coming next. 
So to come into the flow of your present time experience, if you can peel off a layer of familiarity that's gotten you kind of a little bored with things as they are, you can go deeper into this sense of mystery, this unfolding mystery, maybe a subtle sense of some awe um, as you sort of drop in more fully into your experience. There was a time that I uh, was living on the shores of the Puget Sound up in Washington, and I was living with a dog. And when I first moved there, I thought I was in heaven. So I'd walk out the door, go for a long walk up and down these beaches, and it was so beautiful. Um, there were, uh, the salmon would be jumping, and this eagle would fly overhead, and I just couldn't believe my luck. But over time, I got kind of used to it. And over time, I would be walking on the beach, but I'd be kind of thinking about work and family and other things. And sometimes I could go for a walk for an hour and really not even register that I was on this amazing beach. The great thing about the dog is it never had that problem. <laughs> the seaweed of yesterday was absolutely fascinating today and just as fascinating tomorrow. You know, it was just, every rock was worth exploring. And so I had this little reminder it's like that dog is enjoying this walk, but I'm sort of thinking about, you know, third grade and some insult somebody said to me and I haven't quite gotten over. <laughs> and I started going on more of these meditation retreats and I noticed that for some time afterwards, um, I could really be there for the walk. And I could either be there just in the sensory walk of seeing and feeling and smelling, um, or these thoughts and emotions could come along for the walk as well. And then after time, I would slowly drift more up into the thoughts and be a little more, um, a little less familiar with um, the beach. One thing I began to notice, and it's reflected in the Buddhist teachings, is that this sense of intimacy, it's very hard to have a fixed view of yourself. When you drop in to the flow of experience, you know, what would you call me, like what can I really plant the flag on that this is temple? Well, it can't be my emotions because they change all the time. It can't really be signifiers, like this is where I live because I've moved so many times. And then when I really get down into the system of my body, it's all in flux. There's so much going on. So there are, I'm calling this on this map, the fluid eye or the fluid self. And just as I could take a cup of water and pour it from one cup to the next. It's the same water, but it takes different shapes, no matter what, no matter what glass I pour it into. And as this intimacy opens up, and as you step into this sort of this unfolding mystery of life, you have a fluid identity. It can meet each experience, sort of very immediately. Like you don't pour water in, and it kind of has the old shape, and it takes a breath and says, okay, <laughs> I'll form to this glass. It just sort of does it. It's the nature of water to find that shape. So you get this fluid sense of yourself, and it's very relieving. It's very adaptable. Old, old stories don't matter so much. You have a trust that things are going to work themselves out as you kind of just flow from one moment to the next. So you don't have to plan so much, like water doesn't plan so much. Also up in, in the Northwest, there's this beautiful waterfall. It has like a 200-foot drop. I remember being at the top of it and seeing that this stream would be, would be wandering towards the edge of the waterfall 
and the water would go very smoothly, very lazily, and suddenly hit the edge of this waterfall and leap off without even taking a moment. You know, it didn't sort of hold back for a little bit and wonder if it was ready to do this incredible leap. Moment by moment, the water would just sort of slowly crawl to the edge and then leap. Some of the water would hit the air and turn into mist and float away for miles. And some of the water would make it all the way to the bottom and smash into these rocks. So either way, it was going to have this dramatic ride, but it, was, it never paused. It never uh, hesitated. And I've noticed that as I've been willing to step into the flow of experience, that my courage comes up to trust going from one moment to the next and not anticipating so much, planning where it's helpful, but not uh, overly um, fearing the future or trying to work out the future, trusting more that what I need and who I am in each moment, that there's enough there that, that will pretty much cover what needs to happen in that moment. I noticed this when I was um, doing these retreats up in Washington where I was living. I was also working at a youth shelter for homeless and abused teenagers. And sometimes I would be on a retreat like this, and then towards the end of the retreat, I'd start realizing, oh my God, in a few days, I'm going to be surrounded by these um, very emotional teenagers and even more emotional parents. And try, I have to be very functional there. I get anxious. I get anxious, like, how am I going to go from this open, floaty, watery, present with the you know, the sound of a bird, to being very responsible. And I'd come off the retreat and go right back to work, and I would be trying to put that armor back on to strategize, and how am I going to deal with work? And I couldn't do it, and it made me very nervous. So I would walk into the shelter, and I'd be acting as if I had it all together, but down I was just a yogi still, kind of um, floating through experience. And, and I took the risk of being in this shelter um, with these homeless and abused teenagers. And I began to see that I had a new skill that was more profound than my ego-managed skills that I had left behind. What I noticed was that a teenager would come in to the shelter from a horrible family situation. They would walk in and I would once I got over sort of the shell shock, <laughs> I could be there and I would really receive them, very deeply receive them. Like you can deeply receive a breath or the sound of the bird or crickets. And I would sit there and I would receive them. And I noticed within minutes they would relax, that I wasn't processing them, that I wasn't managing them, I wasn't trying to get information from them, I wasn't trying to make them feel any better. No matter what state they were in, I could actually be there with them in that state. So I would gain their trust very quickly. And within a short amount of time, I could actually find out a lot about them because they would trust me. And I learned that the ability to be present for another human being is one of the greatest gifts that you can offer. More than many skills you could develop if you can, especially when you can combine those skills with presence, with this more fluid sense of yourself. That's where this fluid sense on the diagram 
go through this phase of response. And <clears throat> many of us have done a lot of meditation practice and have done a lot of cushion time. But it turns out that everybody up here is also very passionate about the world and being involved in the world that um, is of assistance. So everybody here could tell you the ways that they are fully engaged with their care of the planet. That cushion time is valuable. And I know some people that that's their gift to the world is they really master what it's like to be on the cushion. But it doesn't make you passive. You can actually be beautifully responsive and in some ways more effective in how you are responsive because you're not aggressive. You're not coming at situations with frustration or pushing against the truth, the way things are. You're blending in with the way things are. And if this bell were full of water, I could take any object in the room that would fit in the bell and I would put it in there. And the water in the bell would meet the surface perfectly and uniformly, no matter what I put in. It wouldn't uh, reject some experiences and more welcome others. So I could put my hand in there, I could put a cup in there, I could roll up a mat and try to stuff it in there. The water would meet it. And that's what a mind is like when it's in this more fluid state. Anything that comes in contact with it is met with a sense of presence. And maybe unlike water, because water is a little bit passive, you can actually then take this fluid state and engage it and become very responsive. And some of this is so spontaneous, you don't even have to think about it. If you're sitting there meditating, enjoying yourself, a child walks by, you hear it laughing, and it trips and falls right in front of you. Without even thinking about it, you'd reach over. Maybe try to stop the fall, or if you couldn't, you'd console that child. It, wouldn't, it, it would be so second nature to this fluid, intimate uh, state of being that you have. While we're doing formal practice, our response to the next moment is to fully receive it. So we're not being that, um, that interactive with our environment, a little bit more when we're walking. Um, but in the formal walking, in the formal sitting, we're really working on, on creating this capacity to fully receive and appreciate experience, fully receive and appreciate experience. What's nice about the retreat is that there are times that you have free time <laughs> or your yogi jobs um, or anytime you're in the dining hall. That's where you can begin to watch how your fluid mind is responding to your environment. How is it that you vacuum? Is it just quickly to get the job done? Or do you sit there and hear the, the whir of the vacuum and feel the vibrations? and uh, watch as the rug maybe gets cleaner as you vacuum, or as you're wa washing the plates, you could really be there for each, um, each plate <laughs> as it's coming through. Um, more of that dynamic re response to your environment you'll explore um, after the retreat. And it's a beautiful part of this practice, not just in the silence, but how we respond to the world off of a retreat, but you can begin to notice how action is coming out. Um, is it a reactive uh, pushback on experience? Or does the openness of your mind and heart um, cause a, a response to your environment that's a little bit more graceful, 
a little bit more intuitive. The precepts that we took on the first night <clears throat> are there to guide our actions and our responses so that they're not harmful. But once you start to waken up, once you start to become more intimate and more connected with your experience, following the precepts is more second nature. You don't need these sort of guidelines so much. They're always helpful, but the, the, a beautiful response uh, comes out of a more uh, intimate, beautiful mind. So in this cycle, you can follow it, and it starts with the fact that you're already having experience. You're already having a mind receiving experience, and it's already pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and that's sort of a given. The awakening cycle begins with receiving and how uh, fully you can receive each moment. What happens is that there are some experiences that are very difficult to receive. Or it's an experience that you could receive yesterday, but the way your mind is or the way your heart is today, it's difficult to actually receive and take in whatever that experience is. As you've seen, you've increased your, your ability, you've increased your range from where you were in the first couple of days. But all of you will discover deeper material, certain thoughts, certain emotions, certain body sensations, certain experiences on the retreat are very difficult to simply receive and accept with curiosity. This brings us to the, uh, the second cycle, the, um, called the suffering cycle. And this cycle is close to um, the Buddha's second noble truth about how we uh, add to the challenges of life by struggling with them and rejecting them versus receiving them. So the mind comes along, has an experience, and it's unable to meet it. It's unable to receive it. And you get into your first struggle with experience. The three common um, uh, forms of struggling with experience is that if it's positive, there's an overwanting of it. The struggle you have with it is that it's not positive enough. Either the positive isn't lasting long enough or it's not deep enough. Yeah, this is an okay retreat, but I wish it had been better. Ah, I love the pizza they made for lunch or whatever they had for lunch, but I wish it had been warmer. Or I wish they had had olives on it. So it can be a positive experience, but it's not quite enough. So you begin to struggle with it, a little dissatisfied. I really caught myself once doing this, and um, embarrassing to say it was only a couple of weeks ago. You know, if I'm still doing this, uh, I, I mean, maybe we all are still doing this, but I was shocked that I would suffer as much as I did over such a little thing. But I, there's this cafe in my neighborhood where I like to go and um, do my work and I really like their coffee, and I really like the chocolate chip cookies they have there. So I like the music, I like the other folks who come, like sitting there, typing on my computer, get that little caffeine boost, nibble on my cookie, it's beautiful. It's a real high of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gone there when it's closed, and I've been, okay, yeah, it's closed, I can kind of shake it off, no problem. So I didn't think I was overly attached to it. Um, but one day I go there, and they've switched brands of cookie. <laughs> 
So, you know, I'm game. You know, like a chocolate chip cookie, the chocolate chip cookie, everything else is the same. So I sit there and I start eating the cookie and I can tell that I'm, I'm not quite as happy. <laughs> and I can't figure out why I'm not as happy. Like this, it's a good experience. This is, you know, this is a winner. Why am I not happy? I'm chewing, and I, and I zero in, it's the chocolate chip cookie. It has betrayed me. <laughs> it's a different brand, and it was a little too powdery. It was a little too doughy. But I'm sitting there, I'm chewing, and so I start doing my Buddhist analysis on this, uh, this falling experience I'm having, this sort of drop out of joy, and I start really struggling. I start really, the suffering is churning in me. Like, so what is it? It's like, well, there's sugar on my tongue, there's chocolate in my mouth. Like, why is this unpleasant? <laughs> like, this, this should all be winning. I've got like five cherries in a row and, I'm, and I can't take it. Like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And she was like, oh, it's just not quite as sweet. Or the combination of chocolate and sweet and the right consistency of the cookie is not what it was yesterday. And I'm bummed out. <laughs> Like, how could I bum out on that? How could I really sink on such a small thing? But I was. I really was hooked. But I didn't catch it as fully as I might have. So I went deeper into the suffering cycle. <laughs> so I began struggling with it. I was like, yeah, it's not as good, it's not as good, it's not as good. I couldn't let it go. And so I start like ruminating on it. And I start thinking like, you know, I'm, I've been a very loyal customer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm friends with the staff here. I never talk to my cell phone when I, when I order. I always say hello. I think they could do with getting that brand of cookie back. And I'm just going to let them know. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to push it. But I will let them know just because they're concerned about their customers that they could switch back to that other brand. So I'm sitting there and typing. And I'm kind of like, this story is making a lot of sense to me. But this is really worth investing in. So <clears throat> it begins to take up some weight. And then I begin to get more convinced that like, yes, this has to happen, actually. This is no longer a suggestion. This is moving into um, firm action. I know what I want to say. I know who I need to talk to. And it begins stiffening up in my mind that this has to happen. So then as we follow the cycle around, we move from the first thing is where you just struggle with experience. It's a little bit more elastic. You're, you're unplussed, but you could deal, but it's just not easy to receive. That's the first stage of it. If that continues, it'll firm up into a rejection. And the experience you're having will not do. It will not stand. And you get more firm around it. You tighten up around that. You deserve more pleasure than you're getting. If it's anything unpleasant, you definitely deserve not to have any contact with the unpleasant. So the person snoring next to you that should not happen. I'm going to talk to the managers, write them a note, sign it meta. <laughs> but I will state my case. <laughs> so coming down into that um, thing where you start, to, you start to make a case and you start to stiffen up and there's more opposition and it starts to get more entrenched. So if it's unpleasant, we struggle in the aversive phase where we don't like it. We wish it weren't here, but we're not, we haven't quite made the case against it. It's just unpleasant and there's a little struggle going on. That can further go into many forms of deeper aversion. I'm, I have here hate and fear as two big expressions of that.
If it's neutral or mild experience, we tend to overlook it. So the first struggle is really just a neglect. If you watch your breath, you can watch it for one, two, five, ten breaths, wherever your limit is. And usually you start letting go of the breath because it's just too damn neutral. You stop investing in it and something else, a little thought, is a little more tempting. So the way we abandon experience and begin to uh, go into a suffering cycle on more neutral experiences that we just begin to neglect them. I don't mean to make any of you feel bad for doing this because we all do it. We all do this. Um, but I just noticed for myself that I'll pick up a thought usually because the breath is just not entertaining enough. So I begin to let go of it. If that neglect builds over time, the way I reject experience has just become numb. I don't even see that it's a, as an option. It doesn't even occur to me that I could begin to have that as a current experience. It's like feel your breath. It was like the first time I tried to feel my breath. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, can, I know I'm breathing, but I don't feel anything. Because I'd never invested in my body enough to feel a breath. So patterns can come up where we get numb to parts of our life because we, uh, we have neglected them. What binds <clears throat> you in this rejection, the sort of the mortar that holds the brick wall of your, of your point of view that um, this experience is not worth having, is some I story. There's some identity piece. There's some collection of thoughts and perspectives that's holding this point of view together, this rejection of your current experience. So if you find yourself in a struggle and it's starting to um, uh, become more entrenched, whatever it is that you're rejecting, you can either try to receive more fully just what's happening, or you can begin scanning what part of my identity is invested or is being challenged by this current experience. What do I think should be happening different for me, for my world? I should have a sweeter cookie. I deserve this. I am a loyal customer. I pay good money for this. I, 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 I. What holds me in that sense of, uh, of struggle that's really invested in it is a collection of thoughts and perspectives that come with this more rigid sense of yourself, a more fixed identity that is challenged by the current experience. So I have that down as the rigid eye. When I'm in this more rigid sense, <clears throat> usually the experience I'm having or some part of the experience I'm having is an enemy. It's in opposition to me and I'm in struggle with it. So the brand of cookie and I are struggling or as many of you, uh, well, I don't know if I want to, there might be people in your life that um, you feel are the enemy because they challenge you and your contact with them is unpleasant. You could scan and see what part of me would have to change and be flexible, not to get rid of the conflict you're having, but to not make them an enemy, a very entrenched wrong enemy that you have to overcome. So there's a lot of talk um, in uh, uh, Buddhist um, views about looking for this identity piece and being caught in identity 
And if you can see it, sometimes they're really, you can see thoughts. There's a certain thought hiding in your brain that you think is uh, right, but you can see it right in the moment. And for me, it was clear when I caught that cookie uh, fiasco that um, I liked having a certain brand of cookie, and I felt like I deserved it. And I had felt betrayed by the staff of the cafe and the very cookie itself. <laughs> that um, rigid sense of yourself, when you're caught, becomes reactive. It doesn't respond well. It's not like water. It's not very adaptable. So once you get hung up in one place, you tend to bounce off and struggle with the next experience. So if you have a bad phone call, and then you walk into another room, and you're still in that upset, and you, someone says hello to you, it's hard to say hello back to them because you're, you're caught in that cycle, in that, um, in, that, in that struggle, that rigidity. Because of that reactivity, you flow into the next experience, bump off that, it's less satisfying, it's harder to receive. So that also adds into the struggle, and you start accumulating frustrations. All day long I've been angry, nothing's been working my way. And probably because it was very hard to adapt, because the first thing set you off, maybe the second thing, and by then it's very hard to be responsive. And by then you're just having a string of things you're bouncing off of, like an ice cube going from one glass to the next. It doesn't form. It doesn't, it just hits the glass and then hits the next one and hits the next one. You can't go from one moment to the next and actually meet it. So it's not very satisfying. That's how you can stay in the cycle of suffering, is that you get into an identity, it stiffens up, you get a certain fixed point of view, and then you end up bouncing off the next experience, bouncing off the next experience. You can't feel your breath. It's hard to um, have validating experiences, and so you just stay kind of frustrated. Luckily, <clears throat> it's not true that you're disconnected. It's not a true thing. That um, It's just a momentary place that we get trapped. So eventually, that softens. You just can't keep it up forever. Um, and then eventually you can go back to receiving some other experience or even begin working with the one that was challenging. And all of you have done that. So this far into the retreat, what hung you up on the first day isn't hanging you up as much. Um, some things may be, but one by one they fall into experiences you can receive, into experiences you can build intimacy in places you hadn't been able to before. More challenging emotions, more challenging body sensations, um, more challenging roommates or, <laughs> or hallmates. You know, the, you're able to actually be in the company of an experience and not have that reactivity, not go into that struggle. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, <clears throat> um, just to touch back on that. Um, it has many, many pieces to it. If you read the text, um, the first three are very tangible, and this fourth one is large. It has many things in it. My understanding of it is that it's understanding not just the pieces. Well, this is the mind. These are experiences. This is what a pleasant experience is. It's looking at patterns and how they play themselves out. And these are the patterns that I think um, are helpful to understand. How do I free myself? 
How do I get caught? What is the experience like being caught? Someone once asked me, um, how do I receive an experience that's been challenging? How do I, there's this thing that happens in my life, and maybe all of you can think of something either on a retreat, let's say with something on a retreat that's very difficult for you to experience. You haven't yet been able to accept and be curious of it. And the analogy I have for myself is that there, um, or the story, is that uh, in Berkeley, um, where I lived once, there's a community hot tub that's very, very, very hot. Um, it's about like 113 degrees, and it feels scalding to even put your hand in it. But you can see other people sitting in it, so you know it's humanly possible. <laughs> when you put your hand into it, it's like, no, I, this can't be done. But if you're courageous enough, you can kind of get in it and then leap out, and you're sure this can't be done. This is too scalding. But if you're willing to try to get into this hot water and not just flinch, <clears throat> you go into this hot tub, you sit down, and everything's telling you, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. But you have some faith that this is actually not damaging, so that's helpful. <laughs> and you sit there, and you cannot relax because it's so hot. You cannot relax, you can't relax. And then there's a moment where you're willing to be there even though you can't relax. And at some point, the heat takes over, and you do relax into this water. And because it's so hot, it penetrates really deeply into your muscles and can get into sp spaces that more um, lukewarm water wouldn't get into. It's so hot. And then you get out and you collapse and you're just a puddle of uh, sort of open muscles because you're also relaxed. It's a very powerful thing, but <clears throat> it's the same thing. Each of you are having experiences on this retreat that you're challenged to open up to. And what you want to do is give yourself a chance to, in the next challenging experience, allow it to be. That would be like getting in the hot tub. And then just be in the middle of it and begin to feel what it's like to be that, and you fill in the experience. What is it like to be that angry and let the anger not do anything with it, but just let it boil in you. And then open your eyes and take a break and collapse in a puddle <laughs> out when you do walking. But for a moment, really get into someplace you haven't been able to yet. It's a little too unnerving. <clears throat> Don't take on something too huge. This is a sort of like get into it for a few minutes and see what it's like to be in this experience. And then go for a walk or whatever can kind of help you digest that experience. But all of you can extend your range what I found is that even though it would be wonderful to stay in the awakening cycle and just be in this fluid, dynamic grace of life, um, most likely I can, I can receive things that I've been able to receive before. To actually extend my range, I have to wake up in the lower cycle. So the suffering cycle is actually where there's a, sometimes a little more game. There's a little more potential for your freedom to be courageous enough to go into places where you struggle, places where you're caught, places where you're bumping up against an identity piece, and not do something amazing there that pops you out of it, but learning to soak yourself in some habit of mind or heart 
some experience that you're coming across and see if you can be a little less reactive there, cultivate a little more intimacy with what it's like to be in that experience. When you learn the art of doing that, you can go through uh, a radical opening and not radical opening into some other realm where you finally escape <laughs> things as they are, but you might be able to sit with somebody in your family that you've been fighting with for a long time because you're able to be in discomfort and learn how to be conscious in a place you've been stuck before. You recover that part of your life. You recover that part of your experience where you're not forced to shut down, but you have a, a little more capacity to wake up in those places. The acronym that uh, Diana gave last night, RAIN, is the same endeavor where you recognize what's happening, you accept it, you build, uh, you begin to investigate it, which is really how we become intimate. What is going on here? What are the details? What is it like to be angry? What is it like to be sad? What is it like to be lonely? I remember when, um, when I was a teenager, I would be canoeing out in the, the wilderness. I spent a lot of time. It suddenly occurred to me that the word uh, lonely was just one letter different than lovely. And I knew that because I was able to actually sit with a type of loneliness and then see how tender that made me. And before I could sit with the loneliness, it was only unpleasant. I had to run and get a friend or I had to sit there kind of berating myself for being lonely. Why is I lonely? And actually get to a place where I could sit there and then in this loneliness, I remember one time uh, that really opened up for me is I heard a loon call. I don't know if any of you have heard uh, loons call, but it's just heartbreaking. They have this beautiful call. And I heard that and I knew that loon was calling from one lake to a loon somewhere else. And it was calling because it was lonely. And it put to song the experience, the beauty of being lonely and the yearning for being in contact with somebody else or the ability to hold myself. And that unpleasant experience became one of the most beautiful ones when I could actually sink into it, when I could more fully be intimate in a place that had been too uh, upsetting to go near before. What's delightful about a retreat this long is that you really have many days to be in this process to extend the range of where you can be present, extend your own intimacy into yourself and into your environment. And what I can uh, just about guarantee you is that you are not only freer in that moment, but that plays forward phenomenally throughout the rest of your life. And it's a gift to yourself. And it's a gift to anybody who comes in contact with you because you have a greater range of being present and you can offer that to strangers. You can offer that to people you work with. You can offer that uh, just about anywhere you go. And maybe more importantly is that you can offer that to yourself in all of your waking moments.
think I'll stop there. <laughs> and again, <clears throat> if you find that your mind can hold a map like this and it's helpful, that's fine. If you find that it's too busy, too many pieces, um, turn it over, <laughs> use the, the other side, and just uh, give yourself permission to be in each moment as it is, as is, as it is, which means a breath, some tiredness, some determination, be in the middle of that and ex experience it as fully as possible. And throughout the day, uh, savor each moment and increase that sense of self-awareness and self-intimacy. So uh, let's just sit for a moment and let that all settle. Whatever happens next, I hope you find a way to deeply appreciate your direct experience moment by moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.